This is the Retail Politics Podcast. Here we strive to give you the best political information about your nation. One download at a time. Here's your host, former congressional correspondent and award-winning reporter, Jerry Shields. Thank you, Dave, and thank you, listeners, for joining us for 30 minutes. Once again, spending your precious time talking about politics in America. We wish you a happy 4th of July and hope you celebrate um, these great freedoms we have in our nation with your loved ones. We have a special guest for our 4th of July edition. We're very excited to have David O. Stewart, an acclaimed biographer and historian who has a new book out, George Washington, The Political Rise of America's Founding Father. Hello, David. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? All righty. Hey, thanks for joining us. This is kind of a very courageous uh, undertaking that you took because uh, George Washington has been written about so much. What made you tackle this? It was really two things. Uh, One was I'd done other books about the founding era, and it just seemed to me that I had uh, been missing the big picture, which was uh, General Washington. Uh, He was at the center of everything, and if I was going to understand what happened then, I needed to figure him out. And then as I looked at him, uh, it just shone through for me that the man was incredibly successful politically, which is not how we think of him. We think of Mm -hmm. him as a soldier, as a farmer, as a, you know, all around upright guy, but we don't think of him as a political actor. Um, And he really was for much Mm -hmm. of his life. And I wanted to understand his extraordinary success. He won four key elections in his life, but the thing was he won them all unanimously. And mm-hmm. that's not easy and no. not even then. So that that's what got me going. What was his skills? What were his political skills that allowed him to do that, do you think? It was a blend, as, as it's always going to be. Uh, he was always the hardest working man in the room. Mm. Uh, and he never spoke if he didn't hadn't mastered the subject. Mm. Um, so he, he didn't uh, gaffes didn't happen with him. Um, he also uh, was affable, which is a thing we a quality we don't associate with him. We that see him very interesting. Yes, we see him on the dollar bill. We see him on the quarter. You know, he looks like his teeth hurt. Um, <laughs> and, you know, um, he, he was good company, and, and that mattered. I think he had a gift for listening to people. People love to be listened to. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also uh, had a, what John Adams called the gift of silence. He, he, he didn't give much away. Mm-hmm. So when he did speak, people did tend to listen. Uh, so it, it, was, it was a mix of things. And through his career, he did a lot of, took a number of actions that inspired trust from mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, politician needs to have the trust of the people who are going to vote for him. And, yes. and he did that repeatedly. Well, that's kind of interesting. They got the Museum of the American Revolution in Philadelphia. And one of the things they tout as you're going through the museum is you're going to see Washington's tent. And we're like, what the heck's so big about a tent? But the tent was very important because he always said it right in the middle of all of his men. So he was right in that in that middle there. What do you think was his drive? What do you think drove him to be um, that person, that trusted person, that leader, that visionary? He wanted... He always insisted that the most important thing to him was to have the regard of his contemporaries, that he be respected and thought well of. He said it over and over that that's what mattered to him. 
Um, so that meant he had to act in a, with integrity in a way that impressed people. He, he mm. always wanted to excel. He insisted that on high standards. Uh, and there was a concept in the 18th century of fame, mm -hmm. which is not sort of celebrity the way we think of it today. It's not a Kardashian thing. Right. right. That, you know, you're known because you should be known. Right. Because you are worthy of respect. And, mm -hmm. and, and that's what was for him um, the, the motivating uh, factor. Did he have something in his youth? I know him and his mother were very close, but did he have something in his youth that caused him to say, hey, I'm going to be the guy. I'm going to do this. It, it, it's it's who he was. Yeah. Uh, he, he was, a you know, he had drive. He had an older half brother who seems to have had the same drive. He had, mm -hmm. he had eight siblings. Wow. Um, I didn't know that. But the older half brother then died relatively young mm -hmm. and George just became sort of the alpha male of the clan. Yeah. Yeah. And that really um, was, was what he wanted. His mother was a tough lady. Mm -hmm. um, we don't know enough about her or as much as I'd like to, but we do know that she was uh hard charging woman. She mm -hmm. was a disciplinarian. Mm -hmm. um, she actually scared a lot of people sometimes. Yes, yes. She was tough. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and I think he got a lot of his uh, qualities from her. His, his father died when he was 11. So we yes. know even less about the mm -hmm. father. But mm -hmm. what we do know is that he was amiable, which was mm -hmm. another side of George. One of the things you mentioned that I, I really found fascinating was that he would weep. He wept in public. And uh, again, that's not the statuesque Washington we think of. Yeah, he, he was open about his emotions. Uh, and I think that's a way you connect with people. Uh, you could see it this week with President Biden going mm -hmm. down to Florida and spending mm -hmm. all that time with the people who, who mm -hmm. lived through that building collapse. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's an important uh, measure for a politician to bring to the the game, and and Washington had it, and it was the way he connected with people. He had terrible loss in his life. Um, yeah. You know, all eight of his siblings died before he did. Mm -hmm. um, two stepchildren died um, when young, uh, and he when he suffers one of those terrible losses he writes moving letters about them that mm -hmm. he's open about just how much it hurts. Mm -hmm. And you don't get that with a lot of historical figures. I did a book on James Madison and it, it mm -hmm. never happens. Yeah. With Madison. So I, I think that was a quality, uh, an accessibility and an emotional intelligence he had that uh, served him very well. Yeah, that's an that's a good phrase to use an emotional intelligence. Now, you also talked about some of the challenges he had and some of the, the, the things, the struggles, uh, personal, I guess, uh, emotional kind of struggles that he never really mastered. What was that? Well, the most obvious one was uh, he had a terrible temper. Uh, yeah. And uh, he, he struggled with it. Uh, as a young man, uh, he lost it too often. Mm -hmm. um, as an older man, he lost it only occasionally. And you even suspect at times that um, uh, he, he may have lost it on purpose on a couple of occasions. People do that. Um, mm -hmm. And he also, you know, he was a big man, mm -hmm. six foot two. And at the time that was very large. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, the sight of a big man struggling to control his temper um, is intimidating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. Uh, he, he understood that and, and, and probably used it. 
you know, another quality that was very hard for him was uh, he was not a great public speaker. Mm-hmm. And this is an era when oratory was was essential for yes. your political success. So he had to figure out how to succeed without it. Um, you know, he had a had a weak voice. Um, he did, had not a very good formal education, mm-hmm. and he was reluctant to speak in public, certainly never extemporaneously. So um, these were things he worked on all his life. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, one of the things that I always kind of struggled with in the first 10 presidents, uh, first of the 15, 10 were slaveholders. He was a slaveholder. And I remember reading about how, you know, he would take the field uh, slaves who were pregnant and make them work in the house during their pregnancy, which, you know, nobody got time off. It was just an efficient operation. And um, how did how did that kind of figure into his makeup as a as a guy? Well, you can't take him out of slavery. That was his life in yeah. Virginia. And uh, we can't sugarcoat it. He had yeah. a bunch of slaves and their job was to work for him. And he inst- he wanted a full day's work. And yeah. of course, if you're a slave, you 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 don't have any incentive to work hard. I mean, right. Right. working hard is a bad day. Yeah. Um, so he would uh, uh, berate the slaves. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did not beat them personally that we know of, but absolutely corporal punishment was used at Mount, Mount Vernon. Um, and it was the system and yeah. it was his labor force. He wanted to be successful financially and that's how he was going to be successful. His attitudes changed during uh, the Revolutionary War, partly because he gets exposed to a lot of people who are abolitionists mm-hmm. um, and partly because he has black soldiers. Mm-hmm. Who suffer and die for his freedom. Mm-hmm. And you just can't take that lightly. And he didn't. Um, and after the war, he spends a lot of years trying to figure out a way to free his slaves. Mm-hmm. It's a complicated problem having to do with Virginia law that he didn't actually own most of the slaves at Mount Vernon. He owned about a third of them. Mm-hmm. The others were owned by the estate of Martha Washington's first husband. Mm-hmm. And he could never figure out how to free them. But in his final will, he did free his own slaves that he owned himself. It was more than 100 of them. Wow. Um, and it was, I think, an act of personal atonement, mm-hmm. a, a feeling of, of guilt for what he had done. He, he, he knew, certainly by middle age, that uh, slavery was a crime and he, he was deep in it. You you also wrote another great book, got a lot of acclaim, the summer of 1787, when the Constitution was um, developed. And um, it's interesting, uh, some of the, that time, we had a lot of the same things we had going on now, the partisanship, the, the uncivility, and the, and, uh, the uh, is, is there anybody out there today that you think can, you know, resembles any of those people back there that were doing the Constitution? It's awfully hard to analogize from uh, the present day to back then. Um, You know, I did a piece about some qualities that President Biden has that George Washington had, which he wouldn't think of. I mean, he wasn't a military hero, but he has the affability. He has the emotional accessibility. Right. Uh, He has the, you know, reluctance to do much speaking in public. I mean, it's it's Mm -hmm. not Biden's strength and it wasn't Washington's. Right. Um, Right. But they're very different guys. So, mm. you know, I, I don't want to overwork that. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I think it, there was such a different culture then. 
Mm -hmm. uh, it's very difficult to compare them. So here we are, 234 summers later, the Constitution is still being, um, you know, strong and, and keeping us going. And uh, we had the recent um, insurgency at the Capitol. And how do you think that figures into kind of the history of our government, you know, kind of from that time when they were creating this government? Well, you know, there was an incident uh, at the end of the Revolutionary War when some of our soldiers uh, gathered around what was where Congress was meeting in Philadelphia. And they didn't attack it, but they they demonstrated there and they uh, didn't let the want to let the congressmen out. They did ultimately let them out. Yeah. And it was because they hadn't been paid. I remember that. Uh, which is sort of a legitimate complaint. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, they knew protest. They knew uh, uh, rebellion. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the Shays Rebellion actually triggered the Constitution writing. You have the Whiskey Rebellion several years into Washington's uh, second term mm -hmm. as president. So I, I think they would have been very disappointed. Mm -hmm. um, I just I think they would have been stunned, frankly, that the Capitol wasn't better defended than it was. Yeah. Um, there are, you know, both. The majority leader of the Senate, Mr. McConnell, and the House Speaker, Ms. Pelosi, um, fell down. Mm -hmm. they, they didn't take it seriously the way they should have. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, it, 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 it's, it's not unheard of. I mean, right. these are things that happen. It's part of democracy, and that's that's kind of what you say, the Shays Rebellion, the Whiskey Rebellion. When we talk about the Constitution, it seems like we still have some issues that we just keep going over. And after every presidential election, it's the Electoral College. Do we get rid of it? Could you tell us how that Electoral College came about and, and, and why it is the way it is? Well, it was just a, a, a sort of a grimy compromise. Um, they couldn't figure out how to choose a president. Um, a president was a whole new idea. You know, a guy, you know, they had only kings and emperors and popes and, right. you know, nobody left office. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you were there for life. And the notion that you'd have somebody who left was was new. Uh, states had governors, but they didn't have any real power. So they struggled with this. And there were some delegates at the convention who wanted uh, to have uh, the people choose by popular mm -hmm. vote, mm -hmm. but very few. Uh, Madison did, um, uh, not many others. Uh, they just thought it was ridiculous. One fellow said that's like asking a blind man to choose colors. Um, <laughs> they, they didn't think much of the people. Um, and so their notion of the Electoral College is very different from the way it turned out. Yeah. They thought the Electoral College would be a group of wise men. Mm -hmm. They would be men because that's the way it was. And that they would vote for the most worthy person. Mm -hmm. In each state, they had no notion that there would be parties. Mm -hmm. And we now have this odd blend of party politics with popular vote within the state. And certainly, you know, to be crude, there was very little attention to who's the better candidate. It's the one you agree with more. Yeah. Um, and. I think they didn't intend it especially, but the way it was developed, um, it has a bias and it favors smaller, less populated states because mm -hmm. they get extra votes for their senators. And California, 
you know, when they get their extra votes for their senators, they barely matter. But if you're in Wyoming, Mm -hmm. it triples your impact. Right. So that has been something that's with us. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we've had five presidents now chosen who were minority presidents. They were not favored by the majority of the voters. And I think it's it's really unfortunate. And I think it uh, is contrary to what people expect. It creates legitimacy issues for the president. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, I see no political way that we're going to fix it. But Mm -hmm. heavens, I wish we could. Yeah. Yeah. And what would you have to do to, 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 to get rid of it? I have to change the constitution. Yeah. Um, another amendment. Yeah. It, there is a scheme, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to have each state only grant its electoral votes to the candidate who wins the popular vote. Mm-hmm. And I think 13 or so blue states have adopted such laws, which only take effect if a majority of if states constituting a majority of the electoral votes adopt such laws. Mm-hmm. It's an end run. It's clever. Uh, it kind of makes is uncomfortable for me because it's an obvious evasion mm-hmm. and manipulation. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we should be Upfront. honest enough yeah. to say this isn't working. Right. We need a better system. The other issue we, we deal with so much now is the mass shootings and the argument over guns rights and the, the supporters kind of leaning on that Second Amendment saying, hey, that's that's, you know, the right to bear arms. And when you think of them putting the Constitution together, what do you see as their mindset in forming that amendment? Yeah, well, of course, they didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, adopted in the Constitutional Convention, uh, it wasn't important enough. Um, So it was in the Bill of Rights, which was adopted by Congress in uh, two years later Uh and then ratified by the states uh, in another two years. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was modeled on a number of comparable provisions that were in state constitutions. And they all relate to militia. I mean, Mm -hmm. that was uh, we didn't really have much of a standing army back then. And Mm -hmm. Uh, we relied on militia and it was expected that uh, men would uh, enlist in the militia and would come when their country called on them. Mm-hmm. It is written, however, in such a way that it will bear uh, the interpretation that has been given to it by the gun rights activists. Mm-hmm. I don't think that was the intention, mm-hmm. but if you take the view that all that matters are the actual words. And right. that is a view that people, you know, have embraced more and more over the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, you can, you, you can push that. And, uh, you know, the Supreme court has, uh, adopted it, uh, indicated that they think there's some regulation of guns is still fine. Mm-hmm. And so we are in this morass of figuring out what that is. Now, in terms of, you know, right now we talked a little bit about the, the January 6th Capitol incident. And, and in terms of our country right now, there seems to be a fear that, hey, we're, we're moving closer and closer and closer to the revolution. People who don't make you know, money or or saying, hey, the powerful, the rich are are taking over. And that's when usually the uprisings happen. Where do you see our country now in terms of revolution? Are we are we still pretty solid with our Constitution? Well, I'm reluctant to sell it short. You know, there's a period. Some of us are old enough to remember in the early 1970s. I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but it's something like this, that in an 18 month period, we had something like 
1,500 uh, politically inspired bombings. Right. Um, you know, things were bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, people were angry. Mm-hmm. And, you know, ironically, revolutions, I think there's a premise issue in the way you pose that. Uh, revolutions actually are generally led by rich people. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> um, <is that right? laughs> they're the ones who have the access to power. Um, right. And they enlist poor people uh, yeah. uh, and, you know, rely on uh, some of that discontent and fanning. Um, but I think uh, we're not there. Uh, we have uh, this corrosive partisanship now. Uh, they saw it back then in the mm-hmm. 1790s. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really wish everybody listening would take a look at Washington's farewell address where he talks about that. And he says, human beings are partisan. That's what we are. And we're going to be. Wow. We can't wow. let it get out of control. Wow. That's how you preserve a democracy is you're, you're a partisan, but you're not. And this is my word. You're not a crazy partisan. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great word. That's a great way to uh, to finish our discussion. Uh, thank you for the homework. I, I say to everybody, that's your homework. Read the Washington farewell speech for this 4th of July. I want to thank you, sir. That was very enlightening. I, I, I appreciate the way that you kind of talked about the modern situation and, and, and all that stuff. And I wish you a ton of luck with your new book. And uh, it is George Washington, The Political Rise of America's Founding Father by David O. Stewart. Thank you, sir. Thanks so much, and have a great holiday. Yeah, you too. Thanks. Let's pull in our technical producer, Brad Baby, the Wizard of Pods, and chat with us a little bit about the 4th of July. Happy 4th, Brad. Happy 4th of July, Jerry. How are you? Yeah, all right. That was an interesting conversation. I, I liked how he was able to kind of bring in some uh, modern things, kind of like the uh, the, the Miami uh, building crumbling and, and how Biden's emotions and Washington had the same kind of emotions. That was kind of interesting. It was kind of interesting, and there were parts of that conversation that were very uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Your dad, that's old. That slavery issue is, uh, boy, that's, that's been with us for 235 it's, years. It's, it's something we still have to reckon, you know? It's, yeah, uh, it's it never, really is. It really is. Really fully rectified, yeah. Nah, sure have not. And boy, I mean, we could we could have went on for hours about what those guys were doing. Ten of the last 50 presidents, or the first 50 presidents, I'm sorry, were slaves holders unbelievable but you and i were talking a couple weeks ago about the flag and you were saying you kind of noticed uh some uh some um you know more controversies uh swirling over our american flag right around uh 9 11 i i would think it was like the first summer after 9 11 uh so 2001 so going back 20 years yeah uh, that summer i was in atlantic city And there's two things to do in Atlantic City. You can gamble or you go to the outlet malls. Mm -hmm. So I was at the outlet malls and I'm in the Converse store and I find a pair of Converse all-stars that were the American flag. And they were on clearance and they were two Uh sizes too big. But I'm like, you know, 9-11, it just happened with this overwhelming sense of patriotism. I'm (laughs) buying these and these are going to be the sneakers I wear every 4th of July. I bought them right before the 4th. I wore them that 4th of July. I still have them. I only wear them once a year on the 4th of July. Uh And that kind of started me off on this like patriotic apparel. And, you know, so in addition to getting those sneakers every year, I make sure I have a special 
American flag or some sort of Americana T-shirt that I also wear on the 4th right. of July. Right. And I go out of my way to to make sure I have these items. Yeah. And there's been, you know, older things that like the don't tread on me flag that right. I've yeah. worn or even yeah. just the American flag in general. Right. And these things have been co-opted by people that, you know, support white supremacy and hate and and everything that America shouldn't stand for have become they've they've adopted those symbols. Mm. And sometimes I feel like I'm part of them if I'm wearing my American flag things out on the 4th of July. Like I have a special shirt and my sneakers yeah. ready to yeah. go today. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I don't want to feel like, you know, someone's going to be looking at me sideways. Oh, look at this guy. Yeah. Here yeah. he comes with his American flag because that's I am a patriot. I'll always be a patriot. I love right. this country and I don't see eye to eye with everyone. Um, and I certainly don't support hate, but right. I hate that those symbols have been taken over by people. And then the, the worst part about those symbols and they like to say, like, people like me don't I don't even like American uh, America or I'm not American. Or, right. And, and, and that's. That's baloney. And I and I hate how that whole narrative is is continuing in the wrong direction, which ultimately the the my uh, big summation here is just to keep us divided. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, we kind of got in a little bit with him and, and Washington saying about, hey, uh, we are partisan. We are human beings. We are partisan, but we don't have to. And I think it was, you know, the old John McCain thing. We can disagree, but we don't have to be disagreeable. And I think over time, you've, you've seen that flag being used as, as you're talking. I'm thinking of the 60s and the hippies with the flag, you know, and 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 them holding it up. And and I'm sure both sides were, were using it then. And, and and I see also a lot more now the flag being held upside down or for flown upside down, which is a sign of distress, which is always, you know, that's always kind of um, it's kind of hard to see that, too. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, there, and there was always that there was always that question of should the American flag be turned into sneakers and bathing suits? And, <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I you know, I, I love wearing it. I, I do. I'm like you. I, I love the shirts and I love the all that stuff because I just think it's cool. But, you know, I do see a kid sitting on a chair in an American flag bathing suit. And I'm thinking, like, wait a minute, you're sitting on the flag, man. Come on. Well, you know? I if you I, if you remember back after 9-11, you know, everyone was had this overwhelming uh, sense of patriotism and they were started wearing you know american flag clothing or red white and blue and then there was a skit on snl with will farrell where he was the guy in the office like months and months later taking advantage of that and he was wearing like an american flag speedo and a <laughs> remember, do you remember that? yes i do remember that <laughs> now that is <laughs> and you know, i mean that's 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 really where you kind of draw the line <laughs> so we put a sign on the clothing not to be worn on the beach there's a lot of people around you know i i i get back the the old school tradition of it but I, I enjoy wearing the flag on my on my clothes. Um, I mean, they're sneakers and stuff. But then I also I, I respect the, uh, you know, the treatment of the flag. And, and oddly enough, right around the time 9-11 uh, happened, it seems like this might 
touch point for today. Everyone was putting an American flag on their car at the time. Oh, yeah. Oh, and I was working on the radio in Philadelphia. Yeah. And, you know, that by the middle of that winter, all these cheap vinyl flags had yeah. were blowing off the cars <laughs> and like sitting on yeah. the, on the yeah. side of the Schuylkill, yeah. you know, highway. Yeah. And yeah. and I would go on the air and I'd be like, look, if the American flag that you put on your car a couple months ago looks like it's going to fall off, then then take it off and, and, and get and get yeah. rid of it. Yeah. And um you know, it bums me out when, when you drive by a place and they're they're flying a, a tattered sure. flag that's been yeah. beaten to hell. And yeah. it's just funny. I, I, I work on another podcast and they were talking about the treatment of the flag and how to dispose of a real flag. And none oh, of the adults yeah. didn't know this. They were like, that yeah. sounds wrong. It's like yeah. if your flag is destroyed, you go in the backyard, you start a little fire and you, and you burn it. That's that, right. People that's, don't know that. Yeah, you don't have a party about it. Yep, you solemnly right. destroy of the flag. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You know, I, and it was interesting because I, I belong to an AMVETS group, American Veterans Group in my neighborhood, just more of a social member. I wasn't a veteran, but they have a ceremony every year. They, they get all the neighborhood flags that are all torn up. And I maybe even on Flag Day and they put them in a big barrel and they have a, a big, uh, big, um, you know, kind of respectful celebration. And it is interesting. I mean, you know, sometimes I'm driving down the road and I'll see those giant flags that are waving at the car dealerships you know they got these flags that are like, oh yeah the ridiculous like yeah, yeah exactly yeah but boy when i look at that i just i i still get it stirs me because i think man you know of all the troubles we have in this country and we got tons i mean the, the whole racial justice uh, we've got the rich and the poor we've got you know the politics um we're still, you know, we still got these amazing freedoms and, you know, we could have been born in, you know, where Bosnia or in the middle of the war or something, you know, but uh, here we are, you know, and, that's that. Um, I mean, that's you hit the nail on the head there, chair. Um, we are we are lucky to be from here. I, I usually say this uh, every year on the 4th of, J of July, that America is my favorite ideal. Yeah. And uh, and I I'm. Almost. Yeah, and, and that's a good way to put it because we we're still chasing it, aren't we? I mean, and that's, you know, you're always still chasing everything. I mean, and you, you know, you, you just keep chasing that. And that's a great way to put it. It's an ideal. It doesn't mean ever the same thing for everybody, but it's an ideal. And I say, Brad, you wear your flag, buddy. Hey, listen, I, I, I'll send you a picture of my uh, sneaker. <laughs> Don't tread on me. Don't tread on them. Don't well, try to I'll show you my sneaks, <laughs> my special shirt. Just don't get arrested, okay? <laughs> All right, have a good one, buddy. You too. Happy Fourth of July. Happy Jerry. Fourth. Bye bye. We want to thank our executive producer Mike Gugat, our technical producer Brad, maybe the Wizard of Pods, our announcer Dave, and our contributing voice talent, Mister John One Take Terzis, who is the voiceover Tampa Bay. We will be back next week with another thrilling edition of the Retail Politics Podcast. Until then, always remember to read beyond the headlines. Have a great week. With the front row, award-winning reporter Gerard Shields takes you into the vanishing world of print news to a time when stories were reported, not invented or twisted. Imagine you have press credentials in the front row with Shields throughout his decades-long newspaper career covering political corruption, scandal, and heroics during the critical events of our time. With dozens of Amazon five-star reviews, Shields' latest work, The Front Row, is a passionate study of American journalism while delivering his own invaluable life lessons. The Front Row by Gerard Shields. Available now at Amazon.com.